Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. Our program is focused on an oncology nursing audience, but the goal is to discuss how decisions are being made by medical oncologists in managing patients with breast cancer, and particularly how new research results and ongoing studies are affecting clinical decision-making. To begin, we chat with Dr. Harold Burstein, who presents two patients from his practice who on the surface were presenting with similar situations, but in fact ended up receiving very different treatments. These were, in fact, two women who had parallel stories of modest-sized tumors that were node-negative and estrogen receptor-positive and HER2-negative. And I saw them literally the same day, and so they made sort of a nice paired story, I thought. The older woman who I saw was a woman in her late 60s who was unmarried. She had had a breast cancer diagnosed through routine mammography. It measured around two and a half centimeters in size, and it was node-negative. It was considered to be grade 2 What kind of work did she do? She ran a kettle. She boarded dogs on Cape Cod. What was her social support system? She has really a pillar of this community there. (laughs) She knows everyone on Cape Cod. She's got tons of friends and contacts and extended family and loves her work and is very engaged in this. Like almost all patients, she had questions about what does this mean for her? Can she work her business during her therapy? That was one of her biggest concerns. What will this mean for her day-to-day activities? Now, maybe five years ago, what would you have told us before we had genomic assays to try to add more information into this? What would you have said to this older woman in terms of her risk of recurrence? This is why I sort of put forward these cases. Historically, we have had information on how women with stage 2 breast cancer did, and you can look to programs like Adjuvant Online to get quantitative estimates of the natural history of the disease. She would have had about a 20 to 25% chance of recurrence in the untreated natural history of her disease. So 25% risk of recurrence without treatment is pretty substantial. Probably most people would want anything they could do to reduce that. What about the other lady in terms of her life situation? The younger woman was a woman in her mid-40s. She lived in the suburbs and was raising two teenage kids with her husband. She was not working outside of the home at the present time. This was, again, a very bright woman, a woman who was very engaged in the life of her family and the life of her community, and again, you know, active, busy, and healthy, period. I got to say, you know, everybody, I think, in oncology or in medicine sometimes put themselves in the position of the patient. And whenever I do that and I think about having cancer, first thing I think about is my kids. Do you think that's kind of generally true of people who have minor children? I think that probably is universally true. The first question that patients will frame for their prognosis is often framed around their children. Will I be able to see my kids grow up? Will I be able to see my daughter get married, my grandchildren? I think people really visualize their own existence very much in those terms. Do you think that that is a big part of why people seem to like want to be very proactive often? Well, partly accepting uh, treatments that have toxicities for minimal benefits. I think the language that we use to describe how we treat cancer is a very interesting subject and has been written about, and probably most of the metaphors are not very good ones. You know, people like Susan Sontag have written about metaphors of illness and the idea of a war against an illness or a battle where there's a winner and a loser. And on the one hand, I think people really do feel that way. On the other hand, it probably is not a terrific analogy because, you know, for many women, the 
issues are far more subtle than that. And of course, every woman is going to do all one can reasonably to prevent the cancer from coming back. And of course, people really are in a battle for their lives. But on the other hand, the idea that we need to be aggressive, which is a word that, again, I think we should probably try and discourage, not because we don't want to fight the cancer, but because we want to fight the cancer in appropriate ways. And it was that aggressive mentality that led to the use of bone marrow transplant in the 1990s, because that was the most aggressive way people had at the time to fight the cancer. And it turned out that that really wasn't a very helpful intervention for the vast majority of women. So the language here is important, and we probably do need a better vocabulary. I guess also, now this second woman, the younger woman, her tumor wasn't quite as big. It was, it was 2.0 centimeters, centimeters right? yeah. But still, actually, again, until the genomic assays really came on board, if you think back to the consensus conference in 2000. Absolutely. They recommended adjuvant chemotherapy for women with tumors greater than one centimeter. So these women would have been um, way over These that. women would have both warranted consideration of chemotherapy by those criteria. And, you know, historically, if you've looked at the most widely used guidelines like the NCCN guidelines, the woman with a 2.0 centimeter node negative premenopausal breast cancer would have been strongly encouraged in the states to receive adjuvant chemotherapy. So now though things are different. And can you talk about what happened to these two women? So I paired these cases because I think historically we would have said, just as you and I just discussed, that the younger woman clearly warranted chemotherapy and that you would then give her tamoxifen because she would have been premenopausal at the time of her diagnosis. Whereas for the older woman, one would have given her adjuvant endocrine treatment, but the role of chemotherapy would have been imagined to be much smaller. And as you and I ran through those numbers, we were talking about a couple of percentage point impact on disease-free survival. And I think many women in that circumstance might have elected not to take chemotherapy, not universally, but I think that would have been something many women would have chosen not to do. At that point, as part of our decision-making process, we discussed whether or not these cases should have a molecular assay done on their tumors to help us refine their prognosis and treatment options. And the test that I discussed with these patients was a test I think is very familiar to you and to our listeners, which is the Oncotype DX assay. This is a 21-gene assay that can be performed on formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissues. And they have shown that this assay is very effective at predicting outcome in tamoxifen-treated patients who have hormone receptor-positive, node-negative, and increasingly it looks like node-positive breast cancer. And it's useful in two ways. First, it gives a very refined sense of the prognosis with endocrine treatment alone. And secondly, it seems to be able to identify which patients selectively benefit from chemotherapy. So in these two women, did you discuss the question of whether to send the assay to them or did you just go ahead and send it without discussing Oh, absolutely. It? At the present time, you know, the value of an assay like the Oncotype assay is helping for this decision should I receive chemotherapy or not? And so if one already knows that you're either going or not going to get chemotherapy, then the test is not an essential test by any means. So where did the data come from? I think many people may know that the data for this test that really have driven use have come from a couple of important studies, one being NSABP B20 and a second now being the SWOG8814 trial, in which women received endocrine therapy with or without chemotherapy. So these are studies that were done way back. They were done in the late 80s into the early 90s, and their overall trial design was endocrine therapy plus or minus chemotherapy. In the aggregate, these studies showed that there was an advantage to adding chemotherapy, and based on those data, we began to give chemotherapy to the vast, vast majority of women with tumors greater than one centimeter, as you said at the outset. 
what they did is they went back and they tested the tumor blocks that had been very wisely stored by the NSABP all those decades ago and performed the Oncotype DX test on those tumors. And what they were able to show was that the Oncotype DX test successfully identified patients who either did or did not meaningfully benefit from chemotherapy. Patients at the low-risk end of the spectrum who had very low scores actually did very well with endocrine therapy alone, and chemotherapy did not improve that very good prognosis. And in contrast, women who had high recurrence scores did not do so well with endocrine therapy alone. The tumors appear resistant more so to endocrine therapy. But chemotherapy helped actually a lot, a lot more than we really had imagined. And so that left this middle ground, this so-called intermediate scores, where it's hard to see a major benefit for chemotherapy, but for statistical reasons, it's hard to exclude a couple of percentage point benefit. So the way I present this in conversation with these women is to say, well, here's where we are with your cancer. Here's what the underlying risks are, and here's what the treatment options might be. Historically, we have imagined that chemotherapy might have thus and such a role. If it's clear that either one's going to give chemotherapy or not, then that's all you need to say. But if you then say, well, gee, it turns out now that for women like you, we think we can refine further what the realistic benefits of chemotherapy are. And there's this test, and it's out there, and it seems to be able to say, yes, you clearly need chemotherapy, or no, you really don't need chemo. And then sometimes it says, gee, we can't say more than we already know about whether you need the chemotherapy or not. So I would think that maybe this would be a situation where there probably are some people who just walk in saying no matter what happens, node positive, whatever, I'm just not taking chemo. Yeah, I'm sure that's not very common, but there, a patient are... like that, you wouldn't send the test. Correct. If you're not going to give chemotherapy, then you're not going to send the test. If it's a trivial-sized tumor or if the patient is terribly sick from other causes, or conversely, if the patient has HER2-positive breast cancer and you're going to give them chemotherapy and trastuzumab no matter what, then you don't need the test because you know what your plan is. So how did these two women respond to that suggestion? So again, just to fall back, the premenopausal woman, two-centimeter tumor, we were saying, gee, historically, we would give you chemotherapy we would guess that chemotherapy would improve your chances by about 10% in absolute terms. Postmenopausal woman, we were on the fence. Gee, it looks like chemotherapy might maybe improve your chance by a percentage point or two, but it's not a big difference. So, you know, I sent along the cases and we did pursue testing and the testing was very interesting, which is why I, of course, selected these for cases and somewhat counterintuitive. So it turned out that the premenopausal woman had a test that returned in a very low risk score. She was in the single digits on the recurrence score assay and that translated to less than a 10% chance of recurrence through 10 years of follow-up and also put her in a group where it did not suggest that chemotherapy would meaningfully contribute to her long-term prognosis. Did she have a high quantitative ER when you actually looked at it? You know, the ER and PR were clearly strongly positive, and that may be part of the distinguishing features because the other case ended up having a very high recurrence score, a recurrence score in the high 20s, low 30s, which suggested both a greater risk of recurrence and suggested that chemotherapy really would be a very valuable tool for her and might actually cut her risk by something on the order of about 15% in absolute terms. So the way the decision-making flowed then was we elected not to give chemotherapy to this young woman, and in contrast, did recommend chemotherapy to this woman in her mid to late 60s. And as I said, I think those are very counterintuitive decisions where this test clearly allowed us to make better and more informed recommendations. Now, has this woman, the older woman, did she start on chemotherapy? Yeah, she's three-quarters of the way done. How's she doing? She's done great. 
No major. She's a tough lady. <laughs> but uh, she's, you she's know. She's still working? Yep. She's still taking care of her kennel. She has a business partner. You're giving you know, her AC? Giving her four cycles of AC. Are you giving it dose dense every two weeks or I every three weeks? I do give it every two weeks. So, every, so she's going to be through really she's quickly. Done, exactly. So, and then the other woman... The other woman, she was okay with not getting chemo? That's right. So we decided that we would not proceed to consider adjuvant chemotherapy. And for her, we actually began a combined endocrine regimen of ovarian suppression plus tamoxifen. Interesting. Well, let's talk about the endocrine therapy in these two women. Why don't we start with the premenopausal? It's an interesting decision you made there to give the ovarian suppression. Would you have done that two, three years ago? Is that a new thing? Well... The role of ovarian suppression in women who are premenopausal, obviously, and who have ER-positive breast cancer is one of the great unknowns still in cancer medicine, breast cancer medicine. You would think, since it's the oldest treatment we have, it's actually the oldest systemic therapy we have in oncology, that we would know exactly how to use it by 1896. now. 1896. That's right. You were there, right? <laughs> how was that? Those were, those were heady the days. They, they took the ovaries <laughs> out of some cows or something, <laughs> Um, In England or something? uh, There was an English surgeon who uh, removed ovaries as treatment for breast cancer. What we know is that tamoxifen is valuable in the study. What we don't know is whether adding ovarian suppression to tamoxifen is valuable. And we don't know that for a variety of historical reasons. One being that many of the studies that have looked at this have compared ovarian suppression against chemotherapy and shown that both can be effective, but didn't include tamoxifen. Or there have been studies that added tamoxifen to chemotherapy, but didn't specifically look at ovarian suppression. And finally, it's confounded by the fact that many of these women have over the years gotten chemotherapy. And as your audience knows, if you give chemotherapy to women, particularly women in their mid to late 40s, it's very likely that they will experience chemotherapy-induced amenorrhea, which confounds the question. If you tease out, in retrospect, the literature, there is a suggestion that women who go into menopause with chemotherapy treatment do better than women who do not. And that includes women who do receive tamoxifen. And historically, women who are in their 40s and are more likely to get chemotherapy, and then if you add on tamoxifen, again, do better. And we also know that in and of itself, ovarian suppression can be effective. So one has to connect these dots, but my own read is that if you do connect the dots that it's possible that adding ovarian suppression to tamoxifen is going to be valuable. We are waiting for the final accrual to a study called the SOFT trial, and I know you and I have talked about that study in the past. This is a trial of tamoxifen alone versus tamoxifen plus ovarian suppression versus ovarian suppression plus an aromatase inhibitor. And the key question there really is whether or not shutting down ovarian function in addition to tamoxifen would be better than tamoxifen alone. So I guess the other thing that's relevant here is that people who are on tamoxifen, I think there's a lot of kind of misunderstanding. And I think a lot of people think that somehow tamoxifen turns off the ovaries. And in fact, particularly premenopausal women actually get elevated estrogen levels on tamoxifen, right? You can get some elevated estrogen levels. Tamoxifen was originally developed as a fertility stimulating drug. It works by blocking estrogen's ability to stimulate the estrogen receptor. And women can continue to menstruate through tamoxifen. So it's really a dual approach. You have the tamoxifen blocking the receptor, and then you suppress the ovaries to decrease the estrogen level. Right. So the downside of that strategy is that you clearly increase the symptomatology. So the abrupt onset of menopause through ovarian suppression leads to more intensive hot flashes, I think more difficulty with weight management, increased risk of osteoporosis and accelerated osteoporosis. So there's clearly more symptomatology that goes with that. And I guess sort of the other strategy that's being looked at in clinical trials is the idea of, well, there seems to be some advantage of an aromatase inhibitor 
inhibitor over tamoxifen in a postmenopausal patient, if you essentially make the woman postmenopausal by suppressing her ovaries or taking out her ovaries, would she be better off having an AI as opposed to tamoxifen in that combination? I guess we're looking at that in clinical trials. Well, we actually have data on that point. The plenary talk at ASCO this past year was the so-called ABCSG12 trial. That was a randomized study of premenopausal women who received endocrine therapy with ovarian suppression. Everyone got ovarian suppression done with gozarelin, the GnRH analog, and then half the women got tamoxifen and half got the aromatase inhibitor, anastrozole. There was absolutely no difference in outcome through five or six years of available information. And so for the moment, these look like equivalent strategies. My, I guess that wasn't enough to stop the trials, the other trials that are trying to look no, at that. No, uh, other trials, the SOFT trial is still looking at that. And there is a trial called the TEXT, T-E-X-T trial, mm-hmm. which is also looking at that question. It has nearing the end of its accrual. Perhaps with these larger studies, we'll see a little bit of a difference. But I think or maybe moment, a toxicity difference, too. It's also possible. I think for the moment, for young women, tamoxifen is the drug of choice. And there are a small fraction of women, a few percentage points probably, but a small fraction who actually do not successfully suppress ovarian function with a GnRH agonist. And so you start the Luprolide. Do you also start the tamoxifen at the same time? Yep. So where is she right now exactly? Uh, she began her therapy with that a few weeks ago, and we'll come back to the clinic in about two months for her next injection. What do you think some of the things you're going to be interested in asking her when she comes back? I guess menopause symptoms. Huh? Yeah, you want to confirm that she's got some menopausal symptoms if you're trying to suppress ovarian function, and then you expect to hear about them, hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, sexual dysfunction. Sometimes women get some of these arthritis or arthralgia symptoms that we see in the AIs. Sometimes the abrupt onset of menopause will also contribute to that. Most women tolerate this reasonably well, especially women, I think, in their 40s who sort of have been anticipating the possibility of menopause in their you know, not-so-distant future anyway. And what I typically suggest to these patients is that we continue the Luprolide for 6 or 12 months. If they are clearly feeling fine or feeling well with the onset of menopause, then they have the option of oophorectomy, or they can just keep getting the shots every three months. But I don't go straight to oophorectomy because there are some women who will prove intolerant of these symptoms over time. And if you then stop the luprolide, the symptoms will abate. And I guess just in the interest of sort of providing perspective, we should say that a lot of people, I think actually maybe most people would be giving the LHRH agonist every month for concern that maybe every three months won't suppress adequately. That's as opposed to the inconvenience of two extra visits, and you've decided... That's an interesting question. I'm not aware of data. You may have it on the practice patterns there. For most women, in our experience, you know, the every three-month loop provide as a depot injection seems to work very well. Again, there is that caveat that a few women won't functionally suppress their ovaries. I think there are a lot of people, particularly investigators, who get nervous about every three months in the adjuvant setting. A lot of people in the metastatic setting are open to that. But there's a substantial portion who do what you're doing, that's for sure, also. So this woman's now in her hormone therapy. We'll see how she's doing. What about the other lady? She's almost done her chemo. What kind of hormones have you discussed with her? So she had a tumor that was ER positive but PR negative. That was uh, known both from her traditional pathology review and from some of the Oncotype DX information. And that probably accounts to some degree for the higher Oncotype DX score and some of the resistance to endocrine therapy. For her, we also compared and contrasted the side effect profiles of AIs and tamoxifen and discussed specifically an upfront use of an aromatase inhibitor versus a sequential treatment program of tamoxifen followed by an AI. And she's going to start on an AI after she's done with her chemotherapy and radiotherapy. What were the key things that you laid out for her in terms of risks or side effects of tamoxifen versus AIs? 
Well, tamoxifen and AIs are more similar in many respects than they are different in terms of their side effects. They both can be associated with hot flashes and night sweats and other menopausal symptoms. Tamoxifen very rarely can be associated with uterine cancer or thromboembolism, DVT in particular, though those are rare and average less than 1% of the patients each. The aromatase inhibitors can be associated with accelerated osteoporosis, more profound genitourinary symptoms and sexual dysfunction, and this arthralgia syndrome of stiffness and achiness in the joints. What was this woman's bone density? We were checking that she hadn't had a problem with bone density in the past, but it hadn't been measured again in a couple of years. So we'll check it at baseline when we start her AI. So if, in fact, let's say it turns out to be normal bone density, what would you tell her about her risk of getting osteoporosis or a fracture? In the retrospective work that's been done in the AI trials, women who have normal bone density at baseline seem to be at lower risk for developing clinically significant osteopenia or osteoporosis with AI treatment than women who have some deficiency in bone density at baseline. In New England, in women in their 60s, almost everybody's got some osteopenia. And maybe that's because we don't get enough sunshine, Hmm, but it's actually fairly prevalent. There's been a lot of discussion about the arthralgias, and we're starting to see a lot of papers trying to study what's going on in those patients. Any thoughts about what the mechanism is or why they get this? The presumption is that it's because of the profound estrogen deprivation, but beyond that, we don't really know. There are classic papers that have linked abrupt onset of menopause to arthralgias, and we know that osteoarthritis and other arthralgias are more common in postmenopausal than premenopausal women, but how exactly that's contributing is not known. What we hear frequently now from patients, and I would guess two-thirds to three-quarters of patients have some degree of musculoskeletal symptoms, if you ask them carefully. Our symptoms ranging from stiffness and achiness in their joints, typically their arms, their shoulders, their knees, their feet. Sometimes they describe it as carpal tunnel-like symptoms. I've had patients go to the emergency room for chest pain or sternal discomfort. Mm. Patients often say they feel achy or stiff or they feel creaky or they feel like they aged overnight. Again, the words here are not well said from the point of view that they don't walk in and they don't say, oh, I have an arthralgia syndrome, but all these kinds of different descriptors are used. And it turns out that a lot of that's from the aromatase inhibitors. And I'm sure a lot of patients must ask you, doctor, you know, if I do develop this problem and you stop the medication, is it going to go away or have you induced some kind of arthralgia problem? Yeah. So for a while, we were doing big rheumatological workups in a lot of these women, and that was entirely unrevealing. And there was a nice paper from the groups at Michigan and Hopkins that did the same thing recently, and they essentially made no autoimmune rheumatologic diagnoses. Everybody was diagnosed with tendonitis or bursitis or patellofemoral syndrome, which I had to look up, but it turns out that means your knees hurt. (laughs) Um, And so we don't do that anymore. It is reversible. And so actually part of the for women who are really having trouble with the symptoms, part of the diagnostic test that I do is I just stop the AI for about six or eight weeks. How long does it take to go away? It takes about four to six weeks to go away. So for like four weeks, they kind of stay the same? Well, it starts to ease up. But, you know, if the presumption is this is because of estrogen deficiency, it takes time for the aromatase inhibitor to leave, for the aromatase enzymes to start to crank out some estrogen again, and for the body to sort of get back to where it was. So if the patient's having symptoms that are clearly related, you want to test if they can get away without it or... If there's ambiguity, the diagnostic intervention is to just stop the AI for six weeks. And if the patient comes back and says, oh, my symptoms are the same, well, then you know it wasn't the aromatase inhibitor. And if they come back and say, oh, my, I feel like a new woman, then you've made your diagnosis. To what extent do you see so-called tachyphylaxis for this? In other words, if you just continue the therapy that the arthralgias get better? I think many women, especially those who have milder symptoms, it probably does improve over time. It's not clear that any specific treatment helps. A lot of women report taking acetaminophen or anti-inflammatory drugs over the counter, but it doesn't seem to do much. 
But, you know, clearly after a couple of years, most women sort of have this as a less of a burdensome problem. There's a small fraction of women where they're really miserable. And for them, usually you have to think about either stopping the AI or, or what I typically do is just switch them to tamoxifen. And that's so weird, too, because when you talk about this being the result of lowering serum estrogens, I mean, all three of the available AIs do that similarly, not exactly the same but you hear so many stories about women who have terrible problems on one AI and zero problems on another. It's kind of strange. Yes, and that doesn't make sense. You have to wonder if the other one is really suppressing their estrogen levels as efficiently for whatever reason. Or maybe if they continued on the other one, maybe it would have gotten better? Could have. It's something we don't really know a lot about. Now, you mentioned that for both of these women, you would have looked at their situation very differently if the tumor had been HER2 positive. Right. So let's talk about that in the context of these two women. First, maybe just a follow-up in terms of what we were talking about, about Oncotype. I meant to ask you before, there is another genomic test that is available right now in the United States called Mammoprint. Right. What's that, and how does it compare to Oncotype? So Mammoprint is a 70-gene expression array which uses a signature based on the analysis of 70 different genes to classify the tumor as having a good or a bad prognosis. This test was developed principally in the Netherlands, and its outcomes have been principally verified amongst patients who did not receive adjuvant therapy, either hormones or chemotherapy. And so really it's a test that gets more to the natural history of the disease. The test is FDA approved, but it has had very little uptake in the U.S. for a couple of reasons. One is that technically it is performed on fresh frozen tissue. So you need to have a fresh piece of tissue that has been set aside, frozen in an appropriate fashion, and then sent for laboratory testing. And that is not the way that we routinely process either core biopsy or excisional biopsy specimens for most breast cancer patients. So you can't go back through the pathology lab and say, oh, you know that tumor that we took out 10 days ago, please send it for mammoprint because it just won't be technically doable. Which is something we can do with Oncotype. And that is doable with Oncotype. And so because that's the way we process all tissues for all biopsies, the requirement for fresh frozen tissue has really limited wide clinical use. And most of the new technologies that are being developed for these kinds of molecular gene expression array tests for both breast cancer and other tumors have figured that out, and they're going to go ahead with fixed tissue analysis. The second problem is that the test describes the natural history of the disease in sort of a good or a bad outcome, but it's not linked to a clinical treatment decision. So even if you have a good outcome, it doesn't tell you that you wouldn't do a bit better if you got chemotherapy or hormone therapy. And so it is, in my opinion, less valuable as a decision-making tool for most of our women than right now the Oncotype test is. So let's talk a little bit about if these same two women had come in and instead of the tumor being classified HER2 negative, it was HER2 positive. And first, maybe you could just comment, again, I think you know most nurses are not hearing about a lot of these critical things that are going on, but patients certainly have a lot of questions about them. What are the kinds of HER2 tests that are actually done that a patient might come in with? Right now, there are two types of HER2 testing that are being done. One is the immunohistochemistry. So this is a test where you stain the cancer cells with antibodies that bind to HER2, and through a chemical reaction, they turn brown when there is uh, antibody staining. And so you see the brown color on the slide, and the intensity of the staining tells you whether the tumor is HER2 positive or negative. And the other is so-called fluorescence in situ hybridization, or FISH. And in that test, 
you measure the number of copies of the HER2 new oncogene in the cancer cell using a fluorescence dye. And because in HER2 positive tumors, there is so-called amplification or multiple copies of the HER2 new gene in the cancer cell, you can look at how many copies of the HER2 gene there are in the cancer cell and compare that to how many copies of sort of the normal two copies of most genes that are in the cell, and you get a ratio. And if that ratio is 2.0 or greater, it's considered to be HER2 positive. So let's assume, again, both these women had HER2-positive tumors. How would you be thinking through their therapy? Well, for women who have two-centimeter tumors that are HER2-positive, I think universally we would be recommending trastuzumab-based therapy to these women, and that means trastuzumab with chemotherapy. And there are a variety of chemotherapy regimens that one can pair with trastuzumab and their safety data for, and that would be the recommendation to these women. We know that HER2-positive disease in the pre-trastuzumab era has a greater risk of recurrence. We know that trastuzumab dramatically lowers that risk of recurrence and improves survival. I guess it's about 50%. By about 50%, that's right. And that's above and beyond chemo and hormones. Correct. And so it's really a remarkable drug, and we would recommend it to these patients. So in that instance, we don't go through the Oncotype DX testing because we know that we're going to give chemotherapy and trastuzumab to these women. And again, thinking about these two women in terms of the older and younger woman with this situation, uh, in no negative, so not as high a risk as it could be, but on the other hand, as you say, a tumor that's two or two and a half centimeters on top of that, what kind of chemo options would be discussed with women in this situation? So the typical regimens that have been used in the trastuzumab chemotherapy combinations have been either anthracycline-based regimens like AC followed by paclitaxel plus trastuzumab, so-called ACTH, or a non-anthracycline regimen called TCH, where trastuzumab, docetaxel, and carboplatin are employed. And I think for the most part, either of those are viable regimens. They're both FDA-approved regimens. The worry about the anthracycline-based regimen has been cardiotoxicity, which affects a small percentage of patients, probably 3 to 4%. The predictors of cardiotoxicity with the anthracyclines and trastuzumab regimens seem to be age greater than 60 or 65, pre-existing cardiac conditions such as hypertension, and borderline ejection fractions. If you lack all of those, then your risk of trastuzumab-related cardiomyopathy with ACTH is less than 2%, and if you have several of those factors, then it goes up. And what about the risk of cardiac toxicity without an anthracycline like the TCH? The TCH regimen, it was 1% to 2% in the as-yet-unpublished data from the BCIRG006 trial. I guess the thinking is that there's going to be less cardiac toxicity? You know, in the BCIRG006 trial, the incidence of heart failure was 2.5% with ACTH. In that particular study, the T was docetaxel versus 1.5% in the TCH arm. So there was, in absolute terms, a 1% difference in the risk of congestive heart failure, and the regimens look superficially to be comparable, though there was a 1% numeric advantage for the anthracycline-based regimen in terms of disease-free survival. So again, if these two women had turned around to you and said, okay, well, if I do get the chemotrastuzumab approach, and maybe you can say what you think you'd likely use, what's the chance that I'm going to have a serious long-term problem? Because a lot of these changes do reverse. Yes. In the NSABP literature, probably two-thirds of the patients who develop symptomatic or asymptomatic declines in ejection fraction will have normalization of their EFs with aggressive cardiovascular management. There will be a small fraction of women who have persistent heart failure problems. Those are the numbers that we cite them, you know, 2 to 3% chance of congestive heart failure. And that's a real issue. It's not totally gone if you do not give an anthracycline. But we use those risk factors to try and stratify patients. 
What about the patient who has a node negative tumor like these women, except small, you know, under a sonometer? This is what I call the limbo game. It's the game of how low will you go before you no longer give trastuzumab. Most of the women who participated in the adjuvant trastuzumab trials had node positive or larger node negative tumors. So the risks and the benefits of trastuzumab for these very small subcentimeter tumors are not well characterized, but it's a question we get all the time at Tumor Board. My own line in the sand is at about five millimeters. And the gut check here is, would you recommend chemotherapy? I think that's really the question. If you would recommend chemotherapy to a patient, then if the tumor is HER2 positive, then we would add trastuzumab. And the historic line in the sand for that has been around five or six millimeters. The NCCN guidelines support that as a cutoff point, and I think that's reasonable. And, you know, we have been assembling and treating women on a clinical trial where for women with stage one breast cancer, we are offering them 12 weeks of paclitaxel plus trastuzumab followed by maintenance trastuzumab to round out a year. And what we hope to show in treating 400 women at our center and a dozen other centers that are joining us in this trial is to show that there's a very low risk of recurrence with this regimen and that it is reasonably well tolerated. And we hope that for these lower risk women, by virtue of their smaller tumors, that this will be a nice option. Now, in the metastatic setting, we know that trastuzumab without chemotherapy will have a benefit in terms of the tumor, but that really has not been looked at in the adjuvant setting. What about the option in a very, very small node negative tumor, trastuzumab without chemo? It's a great question, and one we get asked. Unfortunately, we just don't have data. And if you compare the single-agent or so-called monotherapy treatment with trastuzumab and metastatic disease, uh, a couple things stand out. One is that there really is this interesting fraction of about 20% of patients who have very long periods of tumor control with trastuzumab alone. We wish we knew who they were. But the survival advantage that's been seen by adding trastuzumab has been with chemotherapy. In the adjuvant setting. In both the metastatic and the adjuvant setting. So two trials in the metastatic setting showing a survival advantage with chemo plus trastuzumab, five or six trials in the adjuvant setting showing a survival advantage with chemo plus trastuzumab. There is something about the synergy between chemotherapy and trastuzumab that I think is very genuine. So I have in a couple of instances given monotherapy adjuvant trastuzumab But I think one is hard-pressed to actually show that that is as effective a treatment. And the last thing I want to ask you about is your thought processes when patients have had adjuvant therapy and then unfortunately develop a cancer relapse. And I like to focus on the subset, and we've been talking about how ER and HER2 changes what people do so much. And you can kind of think about it creates, you know, several different major sort of patient subtypes. But I want to focus on the subtype that these two women actually have, which is ER positive, HER2 negative, which is the most common That's subset. That's two-thirds to breast cancer. Okay, so two-thirds of breast cancer. So my question to you is you have a patient who, for example, has received AC chemotherapy very commonly, which is what the older lady is getting here, and then maybe a couple years later develops a cancer relapse. How do you think through sort of your choices in that situation? Well, the most important features of her prognosis and treatment are what prior therapies has she had and what's the disease-free interval and how bad is her cancer burden at the time of recurrence. Most women these days have had some chemotherapy, at least many women have had some chemotherapy in the past and have had some endocrine therapy and fortunately are usually 
relatively free of symptoms. A typical story is they have bone pain and they are found to have bone metastases, but it's somewhat unusual to see patients just come back with metastatic disease that's just overwhelming. So for most of these women, there will be the opportunities to use more endocrine therapy, and that's where I typically begin our treatments. If they have not already seen either tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor, one uses those drugs. If they are still premenopausal, one additionally suppresses their ovarian function at that point. There are additional anti-estrogen options. There are injectable antiestrogens like fulvestrant. What do you think about fulvestrant? You know, it's an effective drug in many women. The trouble is that it's usually given as a third or fourth line endocrine therapy and has modest response rates and periods of tumor control. But if you find the right patient, it can be a wonderful drug. I have a patient named Miriam who's been sort of a poster child literally at the Dana-Farber. She's been profiled in some of our in-house magazines on survivorship, but she's had an extraordinary period of tumor control on a full vestrian. Hmm. How did she present? She's a woman in her early 60s, and she's a sailor. She lives on the North Shore of Boston. Their big family activity is boating in the summer. And she'd had bone-only metastases and had progressed through aromatase inhibitor therapy and tamoxifen treatment. And we began fulvestrant, and that was like two-plus years ago. And she's just had a wonderful duration of tumor control with that. Of course, that wouldn't be that unusual for an AI tamoxifen. But as you say, most of the time, fulvestrant's getting used farther down the That's line. That's right. It's now a third or fourth line drug, and so it is a little bit less typical. But it's an FDA-approved option for these women. It's very reasonable. So she just comes in once a month, gets comes her in injection. Comes in once a month, gets her injection, and then she's on her way. What about fulvestrin in premenopausal patients? There are no data for the use of fulvestrin in premenopausal patients. It's only approved. But the point there is that, you know, for most women who have recurrent disease, that's endocrine sensitive, the first thing you're going to do is make sure they're in menopause. Historically, we know that combining tamoxifen and ovarian suppression was better for survival in a small randomized trial than either of those strategies alone for premenopausal metastatic breast cancer. These are data from Jan Klein, published in the JNCI a decade ago. And since most of the newer treatments for endocrine therapy for advanced breast cancer, the aromatase inhibitors and the fulvestrant only work if you're in menopause. And the historic literature on drugs like progestins, like megestrel acetate, was really all built around treatment of postmenopausal women. You know, that is an essential part of treating advanced breast cancer in ER-positive young women. So again, in this very common subset of ER-positive, HER2-negative, you're generally going to, even though they probably have had hormone therapy, you're probably going to do another one. What might get you to use chemotherapy first? Well, women where... For a variety of reasons, there's very little reason to think they're going to respond to endocrine therapy. So a woman who recurs very shortly after, or a woman where the tumor was, you know, very low levels of ER or PR expression, those would be cases where you might reach for chemotherapy first and then try an endocrine treatment out back once you've stabilized things. And the other case would be a patient who clearly needs a response right now, people who have profound symptoms or who have pending visceral crisis. The presence of one pulmonary lesion or a single isolated hepatic metastasis does not mean that they have to get chemotherapy right away. But, you know, people who clearly have more extensive disease and who need some strong induction of tumor control right away to prevent problems are going to warrant chemotherapy. So for people like that, or the more common situation, I guess, is somebody who does get hormones, and maybe they get two, three hormones, and eventually the hormones stop working. But when you get to the point of using chemotherapy in a patient with ER-positive, HER2-negative disease, how do you sort through which chemo and what about bevacizumab? 
Well, there's tremendous heterogeneity, both in our practice and in practices across the country. And you've described some of this in the work and the projects that you've done. I think there's probably more variability in the selection of chemotherapy drugs for metastatic breast cancer than in almost any other treatment issue in breast cancer management. There are a lot of drugs that are active in advanced breast cancer. There are anthracyclines and alkylators and taxanes and vincas and antimetabolites and so on and so forth. And experienced clinicians know that these all have different side effects and different logistics of therapy. And it's been actually very hard to show that any particular cocktail or any sequencing of drugs really has a major survival or clinical advantage over others. So we base our treatments on what the patient's already seen and what kind of side effect profiles they had. So a woman who, you know, had AC followed by a taxane and said that the going through the taxane experience was the worst part of her life and she just had allergic reactions or didn't tolerate it well or had a horrible neuropathy, that's going to inform your preference and is very different from a woman who is chemo-naive or who had four cycles of AC. In the first-line setting, we are increasingly using bevacizumab. There are data from trials like ECOG 2100 that suggested that adding bevacizumab to paclitaxel on a weekly schedule led to longer periods of tumor control. Unfortunately, there was no survival advantage, and I don't think we're going to see that readily in advanced breast cancer. So I think that that's an option. I don't think it's a requirement for all women. And we're seeing a lot of patients with different tumors now receiving bevacizumab, and there's been a lot of discussion about exactly what it is and how it works. Can you explain what bevacizumab is and what some of the ideas are about how it helps? Well, bevacizumab is an antibody. It's an antibody that targets a protein called VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor. And the thinking is that VEGF is one of the very important stimulators of so-called angiogenesis, the formation of new blood vessels. And the hypothesis put forward by Judah Folkman, who passed away this past year, was that you know tumor growth and dissemination require the establishment of a new blood supply. And if you could poison that or block that formation of that blood supply, that you could keep tumors from growing or disseminating. And VEGF is one of the most important mediators of that. So this idea led to a whole scientific field and led to therapeutics, and bevacizumab has been the most successful of those to date. It must be said that we don't know exactly what happens when you neutralize VEGF. Some people have pointed out that there are VEGF receptors on cancer cells, so maybe there's a direct anti-cancer effect. Maybe it affects the so-called permeability or vascular tone in a way that affects a cancer outcome or delivery of chemotherapy. Yeah, there's finally, been, I guess, this idea that maybe you know it's almost totally counterintuitive that somehow it improves the delivery of chemotherapy through more normal vasculature. That's been put forward. And finally, then, of course, there's this, you know, the original idea that it simply sort of prevents the dissemination of new vessels or growth of new vessels. So those are very important basic questions that we don't really know. What we have are empirical data, and they suggest that adding bevacizumab can improve response rates and time to progression in the first line to a modest degree. We've now had three trials of bevacizumab in advanced breast cancer with mixed results. The first study that Kathy Miller published of capecitabine plus or minus bevacizumab for women who'd already had an anthracycline and a taxane showed no clinically meaningful advantage for bevacizumab. ECOG 2100, which Kathy also published in the New England Journal of Medicine, showed a major improvement in progression-free survival and response without a difference in overall survival. And the third trial that was presented this summer at our ASCO meeting, the so-called Avado trial, which was a study of docetaxel plus or minus 
minus bevacizumab in the first-line treatment, was statistically significant but was sort of a disappointment that the benefits in terms of really shifting the curves were quite modest. The time to progression went from something like eight to about nine months by adding bevacizumab, which is a far cry from the kinds of benefit we'd seen in ECOG 2100. Which was really like six months different. That was a six, that's right. It went from about five and a half out to 11 months. Which is, you know, quite a difference. And I guess that's just the median. What about the downside? Well, bevacizumab therapy does bring its unique toxicities. There is a risk of high blood pressure. Probably about a third of women would have elevations in blood pressure such that they need to start an antihypertensive drug. Women seem to be at risk for what I call the Avastin snots, which is a syndrome of nasal congestion and often uncomfortable sort of nasal secretions, which are frequently blood-tinged. That's a frequent problem. There are still lingering concerns about wound healing issues in patients who are taking bevacizumab. What do you do with people getting ports? We try and avoid any elective surgical procedures in patients who are getting bevacizumab-based therapy. So, you know, many of our women simply go without ports, and that's okay as long as we can get ready IV access. If you do Um, need to put one in, what do you do? We try and interrupt the bevacizumab for some period of time before and after. This is something we don't really have data for, but I try and stop six or eight weeks beforehand. Really? I hear a lot of people talking about a week for ports. Well, that doesn't make any sense because, I mean, bevacizumab is an antibody. It's the same exact antibody as trastuzumab, except that the specificity determining region is different. The half-life is two to three weeks. And so stopping the drug tomorrow, you still have circulating levels for at least a month.